Welcome to Medspectives, the podcast about healthcare professionals, the stories of their practice, and their diverse perspectives into the world around us. I'm your host, Arvind Rajan, and Happy New Year's. To kick off 2021, we're joined by Dr. Cedric Bright, the Associate Dean of Diversity and Inclusion at the Brody School of Medicine. Dr. Bright talks about his 30 years in medicine and how it started with majoring in film as an undergrad and how he went from selling solar panels in the 80s to retaking the MCAT and getting into medical school after a lot of hard work. He also talks about his work in health equity and the importance of diversity in medicine. I met Dr. Bright at a pre-med talk and I, alongside my fellow pre-medical students, see him as a role model and a mentor to talk to about any of our concerns in going through the path of medicine. This was a really fun conversation and I hope you enjoy. Well, glad to have you here, Dr. Bright. Thank you so much for coming out. Well, thank you, Arvin. Thank you for having me. How are you today? I'm good. I'm great. And, um, you know, your journey through medicine has really been inspirational for a lot of people. And I've heard you talk multiple times and it's very engaging and it's very, very interesting. I think from when I've heard you talk, you always start with like, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. And, you know, you, yeah, you start yeah. with that. Yeah. Yeah, you um, know, the good old. If you're happy, you know it, clap your hands. If you're yeah. happy, you know it, clap your hands. If you're happy and you know it, then your face will surely show surely it. Sure. Yeah. If you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Yep. And it's, I think that's like a great way to start. Like we're always engaged, like right from the get go. And you really bring it down from, you know, just having some, you know, random person talking to you to really having someone kind of talking to you at, at the same level as like a kind of friend. And I, I really, I think that's that's really cool um appreciate that it's a mighty nice compliment that you've given me for sure um and i think you always you talk about your journey through medicine and how you know sometimes people have it set right some people like you know know from the beginning they want to go through medicine and they you know take all the steps step by step to do that um but you talk about how for you that was different and I think one of the really notable things is that you said you majored in film in college. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah. So um, you're right. I did. I majored in film. Uh, actually, it was called semiotics. Um, I went to Brown University and uh, majored in semiotics. It was their their way of doing kind of communications as a major. Um, and I majored in that because I started off as a biology major. And I'll be honest with you, man. If I had to memorize one more phylum or kingdom. Uh, I just wasn't, I wasn't going to make it anymore. And so um, I thought I would become a chemistry major because <clears throat> I really had a love for chemistry. Um, but um, I had not done uh, as well in calculus as I needed to in order to do the, the kind of calculations that you need to do to become a chemistry major with physical chemistry. So uh, I've been taking some courses that were called clapping for credit uh, by the, the aphorism made by the students at Brown. And uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed uh, reviewing films and, and writing critiques. And, um, and so I decided I would, I would give that as a major. I figured if I could learn how to be able to uh, hear how my patients communicate and uh, be able to discern uh, that when their language and their bodies are not in alignment, uh, that it would help me as a physician. And it actually has helped me tremendously as a physician in being able to I ascertain information, both verbally and non-verbally from my patients. Yeah, that's a really interesting aspect of it, right? Like, we don't really think about that um, application. And it's really cool, like, 
to see how everything is really connected in medicine, right? You need to know the basic sciences, of course, but you also need to be able to observe things like, like you mentioned, and those things really help you in practice. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're very, you're very, you're right on point there. Um, you know, and, and for me in practicing medicine over the years, um, I think that the, the skills that I learned through studying film have helped me to be able to connect better with my patients and to be able to ask some of the right questions at the right time so that I can get a better understanding of why people do what they do as opposed to making a bunch of assumptions. I think one of the things that we're guilty of in medicine is we make a lot of assumptions about people. We, we are quick to label patients for some reason. We want to label them as either disinterested or non-compliant or, or uh, recalcitrant. And the bottom line of it is, is there's often a reason behind why patients don't do what we ask them to do. And if we don't ever take the time to explore that, ask the right question at the right time, then we can never, we end up labeling people. So I think that uh, you know, it's very important that, 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 that you have that humanity skill. You know, folks think, you know, that, that the humanities aspect of medicine is so soft and that, you know, they really want to focus on all the hard science. The humanities is just as important. You know, medicine is actually 60% of what you know. And now what I like to say, and it's 40% prestidigitation. How do you apply it with your hands? And applying it with your hands also means applying it through your conversation. And so medicine is both a combination of art and art and science. It's not just all science. There has to be an art to how you practice. And so uh, I think that, that majoring in film helped me to understand that art component of how we practice medicine. Right. And I think you've brought this up before, but with, you know, recent innovations and things, we've, we've come up with all these testing mechanisms, right? You have like systems like you know the ct scan that you know seems like standard practice now but you know wasn't always around or other scans like that um and i think you said this well before but sometimes we're really quick to administer these tests without doing what like you said um analyzing their body movement and understanding them as a patient before doing those things yeah yeah well you know i think I think um, because we've had such a um, blossoming of tests that can look through the whole body, um, we've kind of gotten away from doing a thorough history and a physical exam. You know, for me, uh, I use tests as confirmatory, not as diagnostic. In other words, I would perform a physical and take a good history. And from doing that, I usually already had my diagnosis in hand as opposed to having to order a test uh, to prove that that's the diagnosis. I already had the diagnosis and the, the, the test was just confirmatory. Right. So, you know, sometimes we lean too much on, on our own technology uh, and not so much on our skills as clinicians. Gotcha. And kind of going back to, you know, your journey after college, what was that transition like, you know, going to medical school after that? Oh boy. So <laughs> I ended up taking a gap year, Arvin, because um, I didn't do well on my first MCAT exam. So I didn't know you were supposed to study for the MCAT. I'm first generation going into medicine. 
no one had ever in my family had gone down this route. And I had a pre-med advisor. I went and talked to him. Yes, I did. But the part about how do you prepare for the MCAT, I missed that session um, because I, I didn't study. I thought because I'd taken all the classes and you know I was at a good school that I should do well just walking in and taking it. And eh, that was not too good of an idea. Uh, and so I ended up uh, taking a year off. I moved back home to North Carolina and I worked as a, I started trying to sell solar panels. Uh, and this is in 1985, 1986, uh, which was like, what in the world are you trying to sell? What is a solar panel? What does a solar panel do? And I was, okay, okay. So that was not very successful. And so I ended up getting a position as a paralegal. Um, and then working in that job, it, it kind of became obvious to me that I wanted to do more with my life. And so that, that gave me the motivation to really study, um, to find the right books to study. And so I took it, the MCAT again, and the books that I used gave me a false sense of confidence that I was going to do well and I didn't do as well as I thought. And so I had to find some harder books uh, for which I was able to find those. And Third time was a charm. Uh, I finally got a score that I thought was acceptable to, to uh, utilize, um, to apply to medical school. And so I applied. I only applied to two medical schools, believe it or not, uh, because I knew I wanted to go to an in-state school because of the tuition. I already had a significant amount of debt coming out of uh, Brown. And so I was trying to mitigate any further escalation of my debt. And so uh, I only applied to two, two schools, both the in-state schools, Carolina and East Carolina, and I got into one. And now that's all you need. Yeah. One. All you need is one. Yeah. And you say this all the time. You really do. Yeah. So, and that, that, that's, you know, that's, that was my year off. I, I think the biggest takeaway I take from my year off is, you know, I, it's, you know, when you're in school and the only thing you know is school, you don't really understand what life is about. You know, the nine to five, the working an ordinary job, getting up every Monday, Tuesday, and, and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and going into punching a clock uh, and performing services. And um, fortunately, you know, even though I worked during college, they were work-study jobs. And work-study jobs are not the same as real-life jobs, hmm. you know, and so, to have that year off and to have that ability to, to work a job and to just kind of get into that routine, day-to-day -day routine, uh, helped me to realize that I wanted a different routine. It gave me the motivation to really dig into my study for the MCAT and to uh, be successful. Right. And, you know, it's, it's a really amazing story of how, like, you know, you, there's so many paths to medicine. Like you can, like you said, sell solar panels and then the next, next minute, you know, you're, you're 1985 solar panels, right? <laughs> See, but you were ahead of the game. <laughs> I was way ahead of the game, bro. If I had been, yeah. if I could have just, if it, I could, wow, I yeah. could have retired by now, but that's a right. whole different story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's interesting though. Um, I've also seen like you, you know, medical school is, a roller coaster on its own and you often say that it's not because of how hard it is it's about how much there is right like it, of course it's the difficulty comes out of the the amount of content you need to get through and you tell you told a story about how you had like a quiz bowl 
thing with your with um with my housemate yeah with your housemates yeah. and you you lived in a place with like six or seven other medical students like that must yep. have, that yep. to me yep. like as a nerd that sounds like a lot of fun can you tell me about how that was oh yeah man so you know basically and when you come to medical school everybody's smart right right everybody's smart but the question becomes is how do you handle the volume okay and so as I, my, my metaphor I always use, it's like when you were in middle school, when you were in um, high school, you drank from a water fountain. When you got to college, you kind of drank from a water hose. You know, if you get in grad school, you know, you put a nozzle on that hose, it got a little pressure <laughs> behind it. But once you get to med school, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant, right? <laughs> and it's the volume that gets you. So what you need to do is you need to have more mouths to take in that volume. And the way that I did that is that I, I ended up moving in a house with six other medical students. Uh, we were like a mini UN. And, um, you know, and we would study every night till about 10, 1030 at night. We'd come into a commons area. We'd have this massive quiz bowl where I would take the most esoteric fact that I had just learned and try to stump them. They would try to do this likewise to me. And if you stumped them, you had to teach it. The key to this is teaching, you know, hearing and teaching and being an active process. And in doing that, we asked so many questions about the information that when we got to an exam, there were very few ways in which they could present the information that we hadn't already discussed it within our house. And so what that basically did, it was like a rising tide. It lifted all of our boats and we all did very well academically. Now, that helps you when you're doing, you know, everything that's all the same and it's just it's the right answers. But it became a different scenario when it became the clinical aspect and things became more subjective. Uh, and you had to learn how to adjust to that subjectivity. And, you know, it, it was a tough time for me back in that day because, you know, there weren't that many black male students coming through um, at, at a Carolina. And so, you know, um, the issues of race and racism and, and a bias and, and conscious and, and explicit bias uh, were rampant. And so uh, it, it wasn't the best time for me. It wasn't the best of times for me during the clinical rotations as it was for me during my uh, foundational phase. But, you know, you, you, you survive, you, you live on, you, you continue to grow and Right. You know, you uh, be a duck and let it run off your back like water and just keep it going. Right. And and you talk about that diversity of perspective aspect, whether it's related to practicing medicine or, you know, just learning it. Like you said, having multiple different perspectives to approach a topic, like you're going to see all the approaches that can be tested and you'll be able to, you know, be ready for that if it comes on an exam in that part. Um, yeah. But then there's also the aspect of, you know, patients that you see. And, you know, you talk about this a lot, but the idea of race discordance, right? The idea like where, you know, your patient, whether it's, you know, um, obvious or whether they clearly present it or it's kind of more like of a subconscious thing, it's definitely there in the patients, you know, that you might see. Have you, you know, do you have any like, I guess, anecdotes from your practice of when you've seen, you know, cases where like this has been an, a factor in, in your practice? Well, I mean, you, uh, you've seen my video uh, about black men in white coats. 
And I talked about a, a scenario in there where I had a brand new patient that had come to see me, a white woman. Um, and um, when I walked in the room, she went, oh. And I went, oh. <laughs> she said, uh, okay, uh, so you're Dr. Bright. I'm like, yes, I'm Dr. Bright. How are you today? She said, I'm good. Uh, but, you know, um, I was looking for uh, uh, for a, a female doctor and uh, a white doctor, and you're black. And I was like, oh, well, is that going to be a problem for us? She said, I don't know. Oh, my gosh. I said, okay, well, let me go ahead and do my history and physical, and then we'll figure it out from there. And so we went through the process, and we got to the end, and she said, well, um, Dr. Bright, um, you, you were not what I expected, but you, you're okay. You're good with me, you know? And so what I had to do in that moment in time was I had to not raise up my barriers. I had to find a way to meet her where she was. Um, and then, you know, be an exemplar, you know, just, just practice my medicine like I practice my medicine with every patient that I have. But, but conform it to her needs. Um, and in the end, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, I attempted to win her over. I didn't win her over because she did not come back for a follow-up visit. Uh -uh. But at least at the end of that visit, we were at a place of common ground. Right. And see, to me, that's, that's what medicine, when I talked to you about the art earlier, that's the art of medicine. You know, because you, you, you know, the doctors that you go back to, they're the ones that, can, that have established a trust They've established trustworthiness, okay? And they have shown that they care about you as an individual. Those are the folks that you want to come back to, right? right? And so that's part of what we talk about when we say the care. When I talk about health care, we practice health care. We perfected nothing. But health without the care is how health disparities occur because people are trying to take care of people they don't really care too much about. And so you have to have that caring spirit, which means that you have to be able to overlook sometimes the blatant disregard and disrespect that sometimes occurs uh, and look toward taking care of that patient as a professional. Right. That's, that's, it's just really, you know, kind of shocking to hear that, you know, someone would be so straight up about that, you know, like, like that was right off the bat. Two years ago. <laughs> it wasn't uh, like this was a long time ago. Wow. And I have even worse stories from when I was a medical student. Really? Oh, my God. But, you know, all that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And you right. just have to learn how to roll with punches sometimes, you know? Yeah, I, I think it's just, it's just really kind of disheartening to hear that. But also, like you said, to hear that it's it's improving. Um, it's still, you know, it's nowhere where it needs to be, but it's the, the issue is improving. I'm interested to hear also, is there the kind of the flip side, right? If you see a, like a black male patient, do you, have you seen situations where that person is more willing to tell you things than they were, they would be willing to tell, you know, a different doctor? Oh yeah, man. Uh, you know, I, I have a, I had a story. Uh, I have a lot of stories on that. Uh, um, one in particular uh, is I had a, a black patient who was uh, when I was at the VA hospital. Um, 
who talked to me about how he was treated uh, in the military when he was an officer and how as an officer in the military in, the, in World War II, we were still a segregated military and how even though the officers were supposed to all work and, be, work and, and eat in the same area, it was still segregated how he was treated and mistreated and then how he had some issues um, health-wise that he felt he was uh, really mistreated. And he cried, he cried in front of me. Um, and he was crying in front of me because he finally felt comfortable enough to be able to express exactly what he had gone through. And to somebody that he thought, or at least felt, would understand and would be sympathetic and have a, and have empathy for him. Uh, you know, it, it's, but that's not unique to me. Is 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 unique to any physician that will take the time to try to understand the person in front of them. Uh, we can all build these 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 uh, lanes of trust uh, if we just take the time. And that, that's unfortunately sometimes we 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 rush through what we have to get done because we're on these schedules, and that doesn't afford us the opportunity to get to understand the people in front of us and. Right. That, that's that has not been my case i'm often late so <laughs> in fact, right. i can arrive at clinic and they were already written on the clinic door uh dr bright's 30 minutes late i just got here how can i be 30 minutes late already and i just got here because we know you we know you're gonna keep talking to your patients until you're yeah. done okay so at least everybody knows what to expect right and i'm sure the patients appreciate that you know wholeheartedly you know they, i i personally would rather have a doctor that you know is willing to listen and and really care than just have someone that shows up like right on time finishes the appointment in like five minutes so yeah 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 that's amazing and i think um are there initiatives and are there you know good efforts to address this more in kind of the medical education aspect i know that you have experience you know a lot of experience with that and you know um being the um the associate dean of diversity and inclusion at brody you know a lot of that might be related to what you do as you know in that position so there are a couple of things that we do yes there's this formal you know um, education within our foundation phase either through our ethics course or through our doctoring course that we have uh, but sometimes students are so concerned about all the science grades, as I said earlier, that they kind of don't take those courses as seriously as they should. Um, but it's just as important, as I said, art is part of medicine. The second part of that, though, is what your class look like. You know, we, we, are, we are very much, um, very much engaged in trying to practice the hidden curriculum of medicine. And the hidden curriculum of medicine is the curriculum that occurs between classmates. Uh, we, I, we really believe that the interactions that you have with your classmates will help prepare you to take care of the heterogeneity of patients in the future, uh, as opposed to being kind of mono, mono, monolithic in a sense. Um, and so, you know, we really work on having that diverse class here at Brody and, and that diversity of the class promotes diversity of thought, which promotes diversity of, of experiences, which then they can learn from each other 
and be able to be prepared better for their experiences with others in the future. So it starts like right in the beginning, right? If you're learning in the right environment, you're going to practice with the same values. That's the, that's the, that is exactly the hope. You know, that's one of the takeaways that I can take away from living in that house because we were all so uniquely different. It helped me to understand how to take care of all kinds of people. Right. And I guess, like you're saying, like this is not something that is effectively taught, right? Like it's just, it's very hard to run any kind of classroom on this kind of thing. Of course, you can, you know, start it off with something like that. But this just comes with experience and, and, the earlier you're able to do that, the better. And I, I think, you know, we are moving towards that um, and and it is getting better. And the the face of medicine, you talk about this as well, right, is changing for the better, right? Um, well, yeah, I mean, it, we, I, I don't really want to say necessarily say it's for the better. Okay. Uh, what I would just say, it's, it's an evolution. It is okay. No, medicine is evolving. Um, the people who are going into medicine are evolving. And now, granted, still 75% of the folks who are going into medicine come from the top income group uh, earners in the nation. That's still the case. But that's now 25% of folks who are coming who aren't. Okay. Whereas before it was 90% and 10%. And so you know, medicine is evolving as more folks who come from less privileged backgrounds uh, promulgate into the profession. It helps to give more, a better perspective about life uh, and how we take care of our patients and give a perspective on how to look at patients uh, in the clinical setting. And so, yeah, okay, all right, I agree. That's for the better. <laughs> it yeah. is for the better. Yeah, I think, I think so. And you know, in your years of practice, how, how many years have you been practicing now? Oh, man, 30. 30, right. 30 years, over half of my life. That's, that's, wow. Crazy, man. It's hard it's, to think about life that way. I bet it is. And during that time, you've seen a lot of things, I bet. You've probably seen all kinds of things about medicine. I've what seen are some... the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. Yeah. And I would love to hear some stories about that. But first, I just want to ask the question, like, what are some things that you've enjoyed that have changed in medicine, you know, over your time in practice, and some things that you don't enjoy as much that have changed over your practice? Well, I, I think the things that I enjoy are, you know, moving away from the patriarchal kind of way of practicing medicine, where as a physician, I'm just telling my patients what to do mm -hmm. uh, and moving more to the shared decision-making process. Uh, I think that that incorporates the best of both worlds, the world and the perspective of the patient is respected and incorporated into decision-making. Uh, so that's one of the things that I enjoy. Um, I, I enjoy the, the, these new technologies and using of the electronic medical record uh, makes life a lot simpler. Um, at the same time, it also made it quite difficult for me because I wasn't much of a typer and I had to hunt and peck <laughs> when I first started. Right. Uh, and that was ugly, brother. It took me, 20, <laughs> it took me an hour 
to do a, a note the first time I tried to do it electronically. Uh, and so I had to go back to paper. Then the next day I was able to do it in 40 minutes, 45 minutes. Then the third day I was able to finally get it down to like 40 minutes, but there were 20 minute appointments. <laughs> so, <laughs> it was ugly. It was really ugly, brother. Yeah. Uh, but I finally, finally got there where I can type with more than a couple of fingers. Um, and that, that made it a lot better. So uh, those are, that's an example of what's good. And the example of what was bad was learning how to type. Um, yeah. But it's definitely been for the better as it relates to records, because I was one of those that I, I really practiced my handwriting such that I could write and people could read it. Mm. But when you have that ability to just pull it up on a computer and see it, it's a heck of a lot easier than having right. to go find the chart and read it. So, right. so that was the advancements that that uh, that I think have been have been very was painful for me, but it's been worthwhile since that time. Gotcha. And what has motivated you? Medicine that I, I really like. Um, you know, I, I like I like the advances that we're doing now with this immunotherapy as it relates to cancer treatments. I think that is that's going to be a game changer. Um, these uh, the gamma knife and these type of non-invasive procedures that we can do the minimally invasive surgeries that we now have. Um, man, I mean, we, we, we have moved the needle significantly on how we do things. Um, and it's, it's, it's just only gonna continue to get better. Right, and that, that is exciting with the cancer treatment. I, I, I was looking into that, like the, the um, kind of individualized treatment rather than, you know, just throwing yeah. like chemo, yeah. chemo in there. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I definitely am excited for that too. I, I have another question with with regards to your you know the length of time you've been been in medicine. What has motivated you to keep you know persistent in medicine and, and come to work every day enjoying it and you know still being giving the patients and giving your students the same energy that you you always did? I, I think it's 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 the happiness that I get from doing my job from doing this work. Uh, from interacting with with people like yourself, you know, from pre-meds who are just trying to figure out their way and they're just really apprehensive about mm -hmm. how am I gonna get there? You know, yeah. uh, and just calming their nerves, help them understand this is new to you, but it's old to me. <laughs> Let me just help you understand how we get from A to B uh, and just keep moving. And then, you know, patience, patience, you know, sometimes patients try my patience, but for the other time, patients really give me more patience. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's just, it's human interaction. I just enjoy human interaction. I'm an extrovert, if you can't tell. Uh, and so it, I just feed off of that. And so that, that's, that, that's really why I do what I do. I, I love to see results. I love to see people get better. I love to see people make their dreams come true. I love to be a conduit. I love to be a connector. Um, so this, this fits me well. No, it definitely does. And, you know, we in the pre-med community, like at ECU, like when doctor, when the name Dr. Bright comes out, we're just like, oh my gosh, you know, like you're, you're, you're just like a really big inspiration for a lot of us in the sense where like, we see you as a person we can come to and not a doctor that seems distant, if that makes sense. Like you approach 
us the same way as if like we worked alongside you in the sense like it just very I don't know how to say this but like it's you, you talk to us on the same level basically and you know I've, I I posted on on the um, the Instagram before we met like do, do y'all have any questions for Dr. Bright? And like, it was just like, yeah, tell him that he's awesome and you know, all, all that stuff. So. <laughs> stop, stop, yeah. stop, stop. No, I mean, I'll give you praise where praise is due because it, it really is. And I really, we really appreciate everything that you do as, as a mentor because, you know, that's, I think, a really big part of what you do, right? And, and you want to talk a little bit about how, I guess, mentorship is an important thing in your life. And maybe if you had, notable mentors in your life too? Yeah, so mentors are, are crucial. Role models are crucial. You know, I had a role model growing up uh, when I was a little boy. He was a, a surgeon in Winston-Salem. Uh, Dr. Allen was his name. And every time I used to see him at church, he would call me champ. How you doing, champ? How you raised doing, champ? You doing well at school, champ? What you want to be when you grow up, champ? You want to be a doctor? Okay, great, champ. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it, champ. And so this was back during the times when Muhammad Ali was the champion of the world. So every time he called me champ, it made me feel like I was Muhammad Ali. Mm. I was like, yeah, I'm the greatest. Yeah, I'm the greatest. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was that it, 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 he was just a role model for me on, on how to, you know, what a doctor looks like. And so it gave me that hope, you know, that I could, that I could do it. Um, and then, you know, when I went to college, I had a, a, a good mentor in my, who was my mentor for semiotics, who actually wrote one of my letters of recommendation. And, you know, she just gave her name was Dr. Tannenbaum. And she just gave me a lot of, she just gave me a lot of salient advice at the right time to help me understand some things that I was going through in, med in, in, in undergraduate. Um, when I got to med school, um, I had a really good mentor, Mr. Larry Keith, who used to always keep putting words of encouragement into me to help me understand that, yes, this was a battle, but it wasn't something that I couldn't overcome. And that, um, you know, I just had to learn the discipline and learn how to work hard, work smarter and not harder. And he helped me show me the way to do that. He was the one that encouraged me to go live in that house, um, and things of that nature. And, you know, when I got to residency program, I had two, two white female mentors, uh, Dr. Sear and Dr. Donovan, uh, who took their time to uh, mentor me through a research project and, 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 and shepherd me into academic medicine. And, and I guess for me, having gone through all of that process and not having a really, besides Mr. Keith, who was not a doctor, I never had a black doctor besides Dr. Allen um, to be a mentor for me. And so when I got to the end of all of this and started in academic medicine and then started having students start coming to me, um, I just fell into a niche. I, I fell into a, a, a place that was needed. Um, and I found, I saw the value in being a mentor for others. And so I, I got hooked. And I've been doing it ever since, you know. Um, it's just, it's, it's such a good feeling, Armin, to, to help somebody go from a state of confusion to a state of calmness, you know. And to me, that this is this, 
You know, the, the, yeah. you know you're, you're, you're ordained to do things in the world. And I think this is one of the things that I'm ordained to do. Right. And you really like, I'm, I'm sorry to, to keep showering you in praise, but I'm just telling you the truth. Like after you, you spoke, you know, at that pre-med meeting we had about, you know, pre-meds that were scared about, you know, how COVID was, you know, dealing with admissions and, you know, kind of freaking out a little bit. I got a lot of messages after that talking about like, you know, thank you for having Dr. Bright on because he really kind of comforted me, you know, like made me feel like it's not the end of the world. It's not like, you know, med schools are going to completely, you know, disregard the fact that there's a pandemic going on. Like they, they, they realize that, you know, there are humans behind that and there are, you know, systems in place that, that may, will make it okay. And you really brought that upon everyone. And so, yeah, you just, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. For sure. So, um, I don't want to keep you too long. Um, but I think I'll close out with this question. What is something that you wish people knew about your job that is not well known? How hard this job is. It, it, because y'all are all such excellent students. But I only have so many spots that I can feel. And, you know, fortunately for me, I have a great committee and my committee makes these decisions and I just kind of oversee the committee. Because if it was left up to me, I admit you all, right? But I, I, I can't do that. And they won't let me do that. <laughs> so I have a committee to do that. And, and that's that's what makes this job easier. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough deciding, you know, who, who, is, who is the ones that we select and the ones that we don't select because it's, it's, it's such a thin line oftentimes between those selected and those who are not. Um, and like I said, is is so, all of the so many of them are the so 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 many are deserving, but there are only so many spots. So that's why it's so important that folks understand: if you don't get in the first time, you got to try again. If you don't get in the second time, you got to try again. You know, keep improving yourself, keep going through a process of continuously improving yourself, um, and. And, and reapply because I have folks that applied for the fourth and fifth time that finally got admitted. But had they quit, it would never happen. So a dream deferred is not a dream denied. It becomes denied when you give it up. Right. Yeah, and thank you so much. You know, thank you so much for, for all the insight you provided. Um, that. That last point I think is, is, is very important. And you, you showed that too, like you, you know, were reconsidering and then you didn't take no for an answer and went back, you know, took your MCAT again, took it again. And yeah, it just, especially with today's climate with medicine, with so many people applying, it can get really, it can, it can be very intimidating, right? When you're not. Yeah. But don't. But, but Arvin, you have to take care of what you can take care of. You know, one of the things I talked about in that, in that meeting that we had previously when they were talking about COVID and all this and all that, you can't control COVID. You can't control how it impacts you, how it impacts your testing days and things that nature. The only thing you control is you and your emotions. And if you can, can take control of those two things and calm them, then, then everything else will fall into place because you only can control what you can control. And let, let go of the things that you can't control. 
because that'll drive you nuts. Yeah. It's the hardest thing to do, though. Like, you yeah, know, it's the it, hardest it, thing to do, but with, but the earlier you learn how to do it, the better off you can be. Definitely. Well, again, thank you so much, Dr. Bright. I really, really enjoyed talking to you today. Um, you know, listening, listening to everything you had to say. So, um, again, thank you so much. Do you have any other like uh, closing remarks or anything? I appreciate having the opportunity to chat with you and I look forward to seeing, uh, seeing you again soon. For sure. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation and thank you so much for listening. If you love Mitzvectives, be sure to follow us on Spotify, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, and share this podcast with your friends. It really helps us grow, and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next Monday.